following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, uh, good morning, men. How are y'all? Hey, on, on the table are two sheets of paper. There's a yellow sheet of paper, and we'll cover that near the end. And then there are some notes. And if you're Dr. Fong, usually just we give you a blank and have some questions. We have questions on the back page near the bottom for table talk. And I'm going to try to get through this. I normally teach longer, and so Jeff is going to help me on my time. Um, Dr. Fong is not here. I actually asked him to send me a photo of what he's doing, so I'm going to let you figure out what he's doing right now. But uh, he is, yeah, he is out uh, bringing peace, love, and joy into the uh, wild woods, and I'm sure that PETA are protesting as we speak. Um, to, today, though, we are not going to be in the Gospel of Mark. I don't know if you know that Dr. Fong writes books. He does a lot of research, does a lot of writing, and he, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. He said, Eric, you can teach on anything you want to, but guess what? Mark. So, so I wanted to take something, and, and instead of going through just a block of text, I wanted to do a topical lesson about something that, that I think that we all wrestle with and we all face in life. And, and it comes from one of my favorite books in the scriptures. And, and that book actually reminds me of a book that was the most quoted book in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And it's a book that is, I, I consider it beautifully human and beautifully divine. And, and if you look at these photographs, they're not from Bruce, but he takes great photographs if you've ever been on his blog. But, but who is the photographer that does that? Ansel Adams, right? I mean, the thing you notice about it is, is what? What is the thing we notice about Ansel Adams' photography? It's landscapes and what else? What makes it so great? It's, it's black and it's white. It's the contrast, isn't it? I mean, look at, look at this one here. I mean, I don't think you can get much more contrast than, than this beautiful image of a river running toward the mountains. And he has a lot he does of El Capitan and stuff like that. I mean, it's just beautiful. And so beauty emerges in photography from the contrast of lines and the contrast of lights and darks and the contrast of texture, right? And so we come into the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is this book of contrast. It's, it's the book of the highest highs, Praising God for all these victories, praising God for all the success, praising God for his presence. And then you turn a page or you go to the next Psalm and it's like, it is the pit of despair. And David is just grieving and doubting and wondering, and it's really, really dark. And so today, here is what we've discovered in the book of Psalms that regardless Regardless of our title, our fame, our socioeconomic class, our marital status, regardless of anything that you could ever label somebody with, there will be hardship and there will be adversity. It is a fact of life in the fallen world. Amen? Now, I'm not a pessimist, by the way, so I know that there are also joys and there's also laughter. 
And I think the struggle that we engage in is that we feel like, you know, when we're younger, we feel like when I reach a certain point and we'll just label that point success, that when I reach the point called success and in your mind, you probably know what that point looks like, right? I mean, some of you are, are closer to that point of maybe retirement. And when, when I'm retired, uh, everything's going to be great. Life will be different. When I pay off my student loans, life is going to be very, very different. When I get the promotion, life is going to be very, very different. When I get married, life is going to be very, very different. When I have a child and when they leave and when they're, when they're supporting me financially. And life isn't predictable. And if the king of Israel dealt with ups and downs with all of his authority and all of his power and all of the anointing of God, why should we expect anything else from life? And so in in the book of Psalms and in our life, we discover that there are three causes to adversity. And the first cause is adversity is often self-inflicted. And can you just say, ouch? No one, no one shoved my head into pornography in fourth grade that would lead to an addiction in my life. No one did. Uh, no, one, no one shoved alcohol down my throat when I was 16 when I totaled my mom's car on New Year's Eve and almost killed two friends. No one did that to me. No one overslept my freshman year of college when we were supposed to register and everyone else lined up at 4 a.m. and I show up at 9 a.m. because I overslept to get my classes and I didn't get any of the classes that I needed at the beginning of my freshman year of college. No one did that to me, right? This is all self-inflicted. The second type is it's inflicted by others. And these are the ones that I believe are almost the hardest ones sometimes for us to process through. It's where we feel like we're the victim, that the office politics went south and we had actually done everything we said we would do and we actually had it documented, but everything turned on a couple of conversations behind closed doors and we find ourselves not where we thought we should be, not where we thought we earned and deserved to be, but somewhere else. And so when we feel like it's inflicted by others, I think God allows those to remind us that this place is not our home. Our home is going to be someplace else better. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, but a better place is coming. And then the third is sometimes it's simply circumstantial, whether it's a tsunami, a hurricane, an earthquake, a flood, you name it, all of those things. Jesus said it like this, the rain will fall on the just and the unjust alike. Isn't that right? That in a down economy, the 401 of an atheist and a pastor does the same thing, right? And when the economy booms, economics are the same for the atheist and the Christian. So we don't follow Christ because somehow we think we will prosper monetarily differently than the atheist might, right? So if that's the message, you know, you want to hear it's the wrong church and it's the wrong book. But we're not left alone in a world where there are hardships. Instead, we're left in a world where, yes, the fall has happened and hardships have happened, but God is alive and God is well and God is at work. And he will move in one of three ways that he will either change our circumstances. And I have seen him heal physically without doctors 
I've seen him heal physically with doctors. I've seen him open the womb of a couple that was not able to have kids and they conceived a child. And I've also seen him lead a family to adopt a child who didn't have biological parents that were going to support and sustain that child. But I've seen God change circumstances. Have y'all? Amen, right? The second thing that God will do is that he will give us strength to withstand the struggle. Sorry, he will change us and our perspective. So there are times, and and my back is one of these things. For 10 years, I've been unable to run because of two herniated discs. I can walk. I'm tight in the morning and some days are better than others. And vitamin I, ibuprofen, if you have a bad back, vitamin I is wonderful. I've done physical therapy. I've done chiropractic. And after spending $3,500 a year on each of those individually, I told my wife, I'm no better off than I was a year ago. So I'm going to save the money. And I'm just going to not worry about running again. I'm not going to worry about lifting again. And when God wants to heal me, he's going to heal me. And if I get to run with my son, and I used to coach cross country and coach wrestling and coach track, and I did sports all through college. There will be a day in heaven, I know, that I'll get to run with my son because he's, he's a Christian now. I'll get to run with my daughter. I hope I get to do it in this life, but God's changed my perspective. And now I realize if I had not gone through some of that, I would not have understood prayer and spiritual warfare. And that's a different story for a different day, but he's taught me that instead of me using running to avoid pornography and lust, he wanted me to use God's word. He wanted me to use prayer. He wanted me to use fasting. He wanted me to use a brother in Christ and accountability. And so he can change us and our perspective. And number three, he can give us strength to withstand the struggle. There are times that we feel overloaded and overworked and feel like giving up. We feel like we've worked a full day and we're heading home and we know that there are emotional needs at home that we feel inadequate to meet or that there is conflict in the apartment with a roommate that we live with and we're heading there. Or we maybe have been physically sick and we're driving to work and maybe that's how you feel today when you're going to work. You realize there's a meeting and you're like, okay, God, I need your strength. Well, you know, God is the God who can give us strength. So we ask why, you know, why does God allow struggle? And, and I'm not God, so I'm not going to speculate. But I want to share a story from this past May. My wife and I had our first vacation in over 13 years since the kids have been born without the kids with us. So number one, that makes me a stupid husband, that it's been 13 years. Some of it's economics. Some of it's we don't have family in the area. Some of it is some of the in-law stuff, you know, that... We don't know who we can drop the kids off at. And four kids is a bigger bundle than one, by the way. But even when we had one, we didn't do the vacation thing without the kids. So this May, we were blessed and we were able to go to our favorite place. And my wife and I, we're not, some people are beach people. You know, you can look at my body and understand why I'm not a beach person. I like the mountains. I I like hiking. I like the air being thin. I like the trees and something that's categorically different than where we live in Houston. It's just awesome. And, and look, I mean, it's, that's in the end of May and that's pretty fresh snow. And so we got to hike a ton. And here's another, here's another picture. I mean, this is awesome. It's beautiful. And I want to show you, you know, that our favorite part is reaching the summit of different things. And so 
This is from a summit. It's about 12,000 feet. It might be like 50 feet under 12,000 feet, but it's in Colorado and it's beautiful. And the thing I like about this photo is, is there's my wife and I, and, and we look pretty darn happy, right? I mean, we look like, dude, we can do this all day long. Okay. If you would have taken this 15 minutes earlier, we were having a four hour debate over why in the world we're trying to do this. We're sucking air, we're panting and sweating and wondering, is it even worth it? But we had heard that if you get up to the top of this, you can look around and it is the most awesome. And I couldn't put it, I I took a double panorama with my iPhone up there. And I stood on top of a rock, and yes, I did not fall, and I, and I did a panorama, and then I did another panorama to make a 360, and I wanted to see if I could put it on a slide, but it would have been this small, and you would have seen it, but it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And so for us, as we were hiking, it was the knowledge that there was something beautiful coming that allowed us to continue to take one step after another, one step after another. Yes, there are times we stopped and we drank water. And yes, there's times we snacked. And yes, there are times we caught our breath, but we hiked. And in so many ways, I think it's a snapshot of life. So often I look at my mentors and my parents and my grandmother and pastors and friends. And I'm like, God, I wish I had that wisdom. I want that discernment. I want their faith. I want that prayerfulness. I want humility. I want a spirit of gratitude. And I ask him for those things. And then I realize sometimes that the pathway he has to lead me to get me to that point is not always comfortable. And so I can't pray for patience. And then when I'm in a circumstance that pulls me to the lowest part and demands patience, be shocked that God has led me to a point of needing patience. Amen? And so this lingering question, you know, when we're faced with adversity, I lash out. I'll be very honest. And whether it's in traffic and I'm in a traffic jam or not, when I'm sitting there in some form of adversity, I get angry a lot or frustrated a lot. And I have learned I cannot express all of that. But I also know if I bottle it up, it destroys me in my heart and destroys me in my soul. And so I don't know how you do it. Some people, they go to alcohol. Some people, they go to work a hall. Some people, they go to buy more stuff a hall. Some people get on the golf course or go out hunting. And those things in and of themselves are not wrong. But if I'm going there as my escape from adversity, hardship, and frustration, I am not going to receive from the Lord all he has for me. And so the answer that I get to this why question from God, and I want you to listen and look all eyes, listen. When I ask God why, here is the answer I get from him often. Okay, hear it again. It is silence. God, why? Silence. In fact, that experience is so human that we made a word from two Latin words, ab, which means from, and surd means silence. And we brought them together. And when we ask why God, the answer is silence. And we say, that's absurd. That doesn't make any sense. How can it be? And our conclusion, unfortunately, is that God must not love me 
God must not exist or God must not have the power to change my circumstance. Because if he did, he would have answered me if he was there and he's not there. So he didn't answer me. So he must not exist. Or he heard and he's impotent. And he sits back and he just watches like a grandfather as something goes wrong with a grandkid and he's too old to get on the floor and do something about it. Well, that's the enemy. The enemy wants us to see God in that light. And I just want to say that if David, who was the king, who could issue decrees and make changes in a kingdom, if he dealt with adversity, we will. But I want us to look at how did David deal with adversity. And his answer is very simple. For David, he waited on the Lord. And for us as men of God, if we're going to be a man of God, we are going to have to learn to wait on the Lord. It's as simple as that, and it's as hard as that. And so today, I want to give you some stuff about waiting on the Lord. Over 28 times, we're commanded by God to wait upon the Lord. Uh, Someone asked me, which translation is that from? I'll wager, if you want it to be accurate, it's gonna be probably the NAS is probably where you'll find it 28 times. But when we think of waiting, often we think of, you know, the doctor's office, you know, you got the three o'clock appointment, but they see you at like four o'clock and I'd love to open up a restaurant for doctors. And if you're a doctor, forgive me, but I'd love to open up a restaurant for doctors and say, what time would you like your table? They say seven o'clock. I say, that's great. They show up at seven o'clock. Where's my table? Uh, If you could sit in that room right there for 45 minutes, our cook will be with you momentarily and just let them experience it. It would be awesome. I would love it. Amen. But anyway, there are four Hebrew words for wait, four. But two of them are used in Psalms almost every time. The first word is kavah. It means to look patiently for, to hope, to expect, to look eagerly. The second, and I'm going to spit when I say this, yachal. Yeah, it means to wait, hope, expectantly. What's the common denominator in these two words that are used in the book of Psalms? Hope. Absolutely hope that the first thing we see about waiting on the Lord is it is not hang our head. Woe is me. I'm undone. God can't do a thing, but it's hope. I want to give you some scriptures and I've put them in there so that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to flip right now. Psalm 37, seven through nine, be still before the Lord and wait. How? Patiently. Don't you hate that word? Circle that word, man. Patiently. Patiently. Why? Because God's not a vending machine. God's up to stuff bigger. We do checkers. God does chess. He's into calculus. He's into differentials. He's not a, oh, you have hardship. I immediately move to alleviate the hardship in your life because comfort is the reason I came. He crafted us to reflect his glory and to be a vessel of honor. And we're going to have to receive in life what filters through his hand. It doesn't mean he's causing it always, but it means in his sovereignty, he's allowed it. And as men, we are going to have to patiently be there. He says, don't fret, don't worry, fret not yourself. It tends only to what? Verse eight, evil. Our worry does not produce righteousness. Our worry produces evil. 
for the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, and I love the promise, they'll inherit the land. That represented a place of peace and rest and strength and comfort and protection and provision from the Lord. Psalm 52, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read the very, I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. It is good to be here on a Thursday morning. It is good to meet a brother in Christ over lunch on a Friday afternoon to support one another, right? It's good to gather and worship and baptism on a Sunday. It is good to be in the fellowship of the godly. And if you don't have, other than this, if you don't have a spot, man, I'd encourage you, get involved in a local church. Get involved in a life Bible study. Get involved in other believers' lives to strengthen and to encourage you. Psalm 62, and I love this whole thing. Look at that. For God alone, he only, on God rests. How often do we wait for God plus something, right? God plus pay raise. God plus girlfriend. God plus, you fill it in. For David, God alone is his hope. And this morning, and I'm I'm, I'm saying to y'all, to me, I need to hear this as much as you need to hear this. In God alone, we must hope as men. If we're hoping in anything else, I'm telling you, we are going to miss the mark. And then Psalm 135 through six, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. If you've ever worked a late night shift and I did this as an RA, which isn't the same as a watchman, but you're just waiting for someone to be locked out of their dorm room or a girl to be in a guy's dorm room when it's closed dorm time. And I went to a small private college, so we didn't have open dorm, we had closed dorm, but you're, just, you're waiting for something to happen. But what you're really waiting on is you're waiting for the sun to come up and your shift to be over because you know, ah, I'm done. It's great. I can rest. And for the watchman, even more, it says, even more, my soul waits for the Lord than the watchman on the wall waiting for the sun to come up. Even more. But let me give you an analogy that waiting on the Lord is like this rope. It's a braided rope. This is part of the rope that has supported for 13 years Dozens and dozens of kids and parents in our neighborhood on our rope swing on the front on our giant oak tree. If you've been at my house, you've seen the tree, you've seen the rope, you've seen the swing, but this is the rope. It's had kids, adults, everything. Any one of these little strands, any one of them, any one of us could just instantly tear it apart, right? But it's a braided rope and over time it is held up to hurricanes and sun and drought and rain and squirrels and you just name it. It's done it. It's amazing. And I just want to say that there are going to be some threads in our hope beside in, in our waiting besides hopefulness. And I want to give them to you very quickly uh, there. If you're in the listening guide there, number one is one of the threads is to cry out, to cry out and seek the Lord. John Piper talks about that our lives are to be Godward lives, upward lives, that often when we get in hardship, where do we look? We look down. 
oh man, no one's here. No, you know, I got to figure it out. My wife and I, I'm guilty of this as a husband. We make decisions often because I'll, she'll say, hey, this is something I feel like God's calling us to do. And I'll actually log on to the bank account and look at the bank account before I go to the Lord. I'm saying this is sin. And I'll look and I'll see that we don't have enough money to do that. And I will tell her sometimes, no, I don't think, I don't think God wants us to do that. Where's my faith? Get on your knees, get on your knees with your wife and say, okay, honey, let's just, God can do it. Let's pray. Let's pray for healing. Let's pray for finances. Let's pray for those things that we might need. And I said, God's not the God of the prosperity gospel, but man, he wants us to bring it to him anyway, right? He wants us to look to him. If my son's toy is broken and he runs to the next door neighbor and rings the doorbell to fix it, man, I'm a bad dad. Do we make God look like a bad dad? Or do we, do we run somewhere else or do we run to him? Number two, stay humble. We find in that breaking point that we are more open to God than ever before. He says that he resists the proud, but what does he give to the humble? Grace. Jesus said, hey, I didn't come for the well. I came for the what? The sick. I wrote across the top of my Bible, God, I declare myself sick. You have come for me. Humility will allow you to receive all that God has for you. And if he's allowed hardship, it's because he wants to give greater glory to his name in your life. Number three, remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. I had a seminary professor that said, Eric, when you are in ministry and you begin to doubt and you begin to struggle and you wonder, how did I get here and why am I here? And you don't know what to do. He said, you're going to want to remember, A, your calling from him. But he said this, never doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Never doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. In my marriage, there have been some seasons that are dark that I sit there and I'm like, oh God, have I made a mistake? Just because it's dark. Never doubt in the dark what God revealed in the light. Oh Lord, we prayed about, you know, we prayed about buying this house and moving here and we did it. We, we fasted, we sought godly counsel. We're here, but now economics are not what we thought they would be. Never doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Sometimes we stay steadfast in that time. Number four, we celebrate and meditate on God's faithfulness. Start a journal. And if you're a real man, I mean, that word is sort of girly, you know. I know that. It, 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 includes, it includes prayers. It includes blessing. It includes truths maybe you hear in the sermon. I, I, I took a picture of my journal. I brought it here. I want you all to see. Um, I call my journal a diary. And, and I, I keep it with that heart padlock on it because I'm afraid my wife will read it, okay? But, you know... If you're, if journal is too girly, then call it a diary. Okay, that's, that's, okay, that's a joke. But uh, our perspective, though, shifts when our meditation on God's goodness, love, power, works, and mercy buoy us above our feelings of affliction and despair. 
Y'all see that? When we set our mind on things above and not on the things of the earth, we find that we begin to be buoyed in life over despair and over our circumstances. Number five, obey the last thing you were told until God changes your circumstances. Obey the last thing you were told until God changes your circumstances. Number six, praise and worship his character and nature. Prayerfulness is the opposite of prayerlessness and worship is the opposite of withdrawing from God. And the last thing we need to do when we are going through affliction is to withdraw from the one God who is the God of all comfort, who is the God of life and love and light and liberty and freedom. That the most thing my soul needs is to be closer to God, not further away from God. And the one thing the enemy wants is that in hardship, I would walk away from God and step away from him. So it's in lifting our hands that the posture of our our heart is saying, God, I give to you my hardship. And Lord, I receive from you your presence. I receive from you your blessing. I receive from you your gift of strength. The Latin word we use, the, the word we use for comfort comes from two Latin words, cum and fortis, with strength, that comfort, the comfort of God, 2 Corinthians chapter one, the God of all comfort is not God drops a Kleenex down from heaven and, oh, Eric, here, I'll comfort you. Now that's what a mom does to a kid, right? What God does to us is he says, Eric, I come with my power and I come with my strength and I come with my promises. And on this sheet, this yellow sheet, an assignment for you. These are the promises of God of who you are in Jesus. That the enemy wants us to forget the many promises of God. And that we should anchor and tether our soul to the word of God and memorize these and speak these to one another and speak these into our own life. Preach the gospel daily, especially to yourself. Amen. And then number seven, sing a new song when God has delivered you. I love Psalm 40. You too has sung that all around the world and they're not necessarily, you know, the great Christian band. However, they have some theology and they have some passion in their songs. And to take that, Bono said that that was the gospel on a political album called War. And it became their closing anthem for 20 years was Psalm 40. And I love it. And so let me give you some things waiting does for us. It teaches us patience and forges godly character. I'm just going to fly through these due to time. It purifies our motives. It protects us from unseen danger. And I'll just say, man, if if I got a date with every girl I had asked out in life, I would, I guarantee you God protected me a lot. And I'm being highly honest, you know, I'm not like the big buff guy. I'm I'm like sort of the elven man that has a good sense of humor. And that worked well for my wife. And I praise God for my wife. There was one, one in a billion or one in six billion, but I got her and I love her. She's awesome. Um, It makes us great witnesses of God's faithfulness. When people see us waiting and enduring faithfully in hardship, 
we model faith. And they say, how can you be so sure? How do you know? If I were you, I would be like Job's wife, curse God and die. But you're standing in the faith. You're showing the world the gospel. And we have three choices when it comes to adversity. We can seek to manipulate the circumstance to get what we want. Raise your hand if you're guilty of that one. I mean, that is historically, that is the men's, we want to fix it, dude. And we will bend the law to fix it. If I'm an accountant and the CEO comes to me and he's like, dude, our quarterlies are due and things aren't good, but the stock can't go down. Well, we saw what happened at Enron, Arthur. You know, we, we, we've seen it in our economy. When Obama said capitalism failed, it's not. No, capitalism didn't fail. Greed and dishonesty fail. Capitalism didn't fail. But guess what? People are greedy and people are dishonest. Number two, we can walk away from God in disappointment or anger. And I've met those people. And I have been tempted to be that person in the past. Not recently in the past, praise God, but I've been tempted. Or three is we can wait and trust God. And here's the deal, waiting on God, it requires us to be patient, to be faithful, to be courageous. It calls us not to trust in ourselves but it calls us to trust in God's goodness, in his mercy, in his character, in his strength, amen? And so my prayer is that for Eric Reed, and my prayer is that for each of us at Warrior's Heart, that we would take this prayer and this would become, this would become our anthem in our heart. When we face adversity, we would say, and now, O oh Lord, for what do I, for what? Do I wait? My hope is in you. So there are some questions there at the bottom of the page and some are deeply personal and some are more observational. Share as, you, as you're able and as you see fit there. You know, I'm not gonna force you to open up all your wounds here, but if you feel like, hey, I wanna share this at my table, be honest and, and let someone into that. And, and at the table, I wanna remind you, pray for each other. When we share something, let's speak encouragement into each other. Because life, man, it, it's hard. It's hard. It's great. And it can be hard. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for these men. I thank you that before the sun has come up, that they have risen up and they have said, Lord, we want to hear from you. And Lord, I want to be faithful to you. And Lord, as they sit around the table, I ask that your spirit, God, who is alive and well in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, I ask that you would work that you would put encouragement into the heart of us where we need encouragement. You would convict us, Father God, where we need conviction. And Lord, that as we walk out of here, we would walk with an enduring faith of you that we say, Lord, in hardship, we will trust. In hardship, we will be resolved to wait upon you because God, you are good and you are great and you alone are our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, 
You can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.